This is economics in one lesson. By Henry Hazlitt. We'll continue in chapter 7. The Curse of Machinery. Part 2. One might pile up mountains of figures to show how wrong were the technophobes of the past. But it would do no good unless we understood clearly why they were wrong. For statistics and history are useless in economics unless accompanied by a basic deductive understanding of the facts. Which means, in this case, an understanding of why the past consequences of the introduction of machinery and other labor-saving devices had to occur. Otherwise, the technophobes will assert, as they do in fact assert when you point out to them, that the prophecies of their predecessors turned out to be absurd. That may have been all very well in the past, but today conditions are fundamentally different. And now we simply cannot afford to develop any more labor-saving machinery. Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, indeed, in a syndicated newspaper column of September 19, 1945, wrote, We have reached a point today where labor-saving devices are good only when they do not throw the worker out of his job. If it were indeed true that the introduction of labor-saving machinery is a cause of constantly mounting unemployment and misery, the logical conclusions to be drawn would be revolutionary, not only in the technical field, but for our whole concept of civilization. Not only should we have to regard all further technical progress as a calamity, we should have to regard all past technical progress with equal horror. Every day, each of us, in his own capacity, is engaged in trying to reduce the effort it requires to accomplish a giving result. Each of us is trying to save his own labor. To economize the means required to achieve his ends, every employer, small as well as large, seeks constantly to gain his results more economically and efficiently. That is, by saving labor. Every intelligent workman tries to cut down the effort necessary to accomplish his assigned job. The most ambitious of us try tirelessly to increase the results we can achieve in a given number of hours. The technophobes, if they were logical, inconsistent, would have to dismiss all this progress and ingenuity as not only useless, but vicious. Why should freight be carried from New York to Chicago by railroads when we could employ enormously more men, for example, to carry it 
all on their backs. Theories as false as this are never held with logical consistency, but they do great harm because they are held at all. Let us therefore try to see exactly what happens when technical improvements in labor-saving machinery are introduced. The details will vary in each instance, depending upon the particular conditions that prevail in a given industry or period. But we shall assume an example that involves the main possibilities. Suppose a clothing manufacturer learns of a machine that will make men's and women's overcoats for half as much labor as previously. He installs the machines and drops half his labor force. This looks at a first glance like a clear loss of employment, but the machine itself required labor to make it. So here, as one offset, are jobs that would not otherwise have existed. The manufacturer, however, will have adopted the machine only if it had either made better suits for half as much labor or had made the same kind of suits at a smaller cost. If we assume the latter, we cannot assume that the amount of labor to make the machines was as great in terms of payrolls as the amount of labor that the clothing manufacturer hopes to save in the long run by adopting the machine. Otherwise, there would have been no economy, and he would have not adopted it. So there is still a net loss of employment to be accounted for, but we should at least keep in mind the possibility that even the first effect of the introduction of labor-saving machinery may be to increase employment on net balance, because it is usually only in the long term that the clothing manufacturer expects to save money by adopting the machine. It may take several years for the machine to pay for itself. After the machine has produced economies sufficient to offset its costs, the clothing manufacturer has more profits than before. We shall assume that he merely sells his coats for the same price as his competitors and makes no effort to undersell them. At this point, it may seem labor has suffered a net loss of employment, while it is only the manufacturer, the capitalist, who has gained. But it is precisely out of these extra profits that the subsequent special gains must come. The manufacturer must use these extra profits in at least one of three ways, and possibly he will use part of them in all three. He will use the extra profits to expand his operations by buying more machines to make more coats, or he will invest the extra profits in some other industry, or he will spend the extra profits on increasing his own consumption. Whichever of these three courses he takes, he will increase employment. In other words, the manufacturer, as a result of his economies, has profits that he did not have before. Every dollar of the amount he has saved in direct wages 
to former coal makers. He now has to pay out in indirect wages to the makers of the new machine or to the workers in another capital industry or to the makers of a new house or motor car for himself or of jewelry and furs for his wife. In any case, unless he is a pointless hoarder, he gives indirectly as many jobs as he ceased to give directly. But the matter does not and cannot rest at this stage. If this enterprising manufacturer affects great economies as compared with his competitors, either he will begin to expand his operations at their expense or they will start buying the machines too. Again, more work will be given to the makers of the machines. But competition and production will then also begin to force down the price of overcoats. There will no longer be as great profits for those who adopt the new machines. The rate of profit of the manufacturers using the new machine will begin to drop, while the manufacturers who have still not adopted the machine may now make no profit at all. The savings, in other words, will begin to be passed along to the buyers of the overcoats, to the consumers. But as overcoats are now cheaper, more people will buy them. This means that though it takes fewer people to make the same number of overcoats as before, more overcoats are now being made than before. If the demand for overcoats is what economists call elastic, that is, if a fall in the price of overcoats causes a larger total amount of money to be spent on overcoats than previously, then more people may be employed even in making overcoats than before the new labor-saving machines was introduced. We have already seen how this actually happened historically with stockings and other textiles. But the new employment does not depend on the elasticity of demand for the particular product involved. Suppose that, though the price of overcoats was almost cut in half from a former price, say of $50, to a new price of $30, not a single additional coat was sold. The result would be that while consumers were as well provided with new overcoats as before. Each buyer would now have $20 left over that he would not have had left over before. He will therefore spend this $20 for something else and so provide increased employment in other lines. In brief, on net balance machines, technical improvements, economies and efficiencies do not throw men out of work.